Hi, I'm John Lenchner, and I'll be your host for today's inaugural On Not Knowing podcast. I've often felt that as researchers, we expect each other to be know-it-alls. However, I'm not sure about you, but I'm not a know-it-all. For me, this new turn of mind that we're calling the growth mindset is an opportunity to shed an unwanted and burdensome identity. So what is a growth mindset anyway? According to Carol Dweck, who conceived of this concept a number of decades ago, it's a belief that talent can be developed and is not static. It's a mindset that uses other people's success to inspire and motivate us. In the spirit of inspiring and motivating us, several colleagues and I had the idea to bring this growth mindset concept to life through a series of informal interviews with people who exemplify what it means to have such a continuously questioning, curious, and growth-oriented mindset. In that vein, it's my pleasure to introduce IBM fellow John Cohn. John is one of the most playful and curious people I know. So what better a person to kick off this series with than him? John is also an incredibly genuine and caring person. He is a friend and mentor to me and many others. So hi, John, and welcome to our very first episode of On Not Knowing. Thank you so much, John. This is such a cool project. I'm really happy to be part of it. So, John, how was it that you first became interested in science? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't ever remember not being interested in science. So it must have been somewhere in the early stages of cell division, you know, when the mommy and the daddy love each other very much. And I don't know exactly. But I do know, I, actually, I have one factoid, is that my mother recently found a, uh, something I had written in my undecipherable scrawl that when I was eight, I said I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to go to MIT. So that brackets it. Um, and I know I grew up in Houston, Texas, to the extent that I grew up. And um, uh, everybody around me was like space crazy. And I always wanted to be an astronaut. And I quickly learned I wasn't good enough looking. So, so something I know about you is that you like blowing things up. How did that first become a preoccupation of yours? Oh my gosh, I'd have to give the same answer. I don't ever remember not doing it. I think I had very indulgent and kind of a great deal of benign neglect as a kid. Uh, my parents knew that uh, my myself and my brother were like really into science, so they made a little laboratory. And they, back in the day, it was before the intrawebs, of course, so we used to order stuff like from Fisher Scientific and Curtin Scientific to my mom, you know, potassium chlorate sounds like baking soda, you know, and so as a funny thing. So we always used to blow stuff up and we got to a point where, you know, the hearing in my left ear, for example, doesn't work because of a compound called silver azide. And when my parents moved out of their house in maybe 2004 in Texas, I went back there and I'm, I'm only half joking. I almost had to call the bomb squad. You know, I had sodium peroxide and I had a thing of red fuming nitric acid that had started to rot. All good fun. Okay, so eventually you became less de delinquent, I presume, and you ended up at MIT. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know about less delinquent, just more discreet. After MIT, you, you were eventually hired into IBM. How did that come about? And where did you start off at IBM? Yeah, it's funny because I think about after MIT. I'm not after MIT. I'm still there, as you'll find out. I went to Boston. I went to MIT. I don't even know how I knew about it, but it was as far away from the heat of Houston, Texas as I could get. And so I... While I was up there, I had a good friend um, uh, growing up, and she lived up in, in Burlington. She went to UVM, and I used to hitchhike up here, and I met a bunch of her friends, and I, I fell in love with the state of Vermont. And 
when I was graduating, I kind of didn't have a plan. Uh, and uh, this friend of mine introduced me into a party and I met somebody who said, oh, you know, IBM is up here. And the rest is, as they say, history. That's the only job I've interview I've ever had. So what part of the company did you get hired into? Uh, it was in the what was then the Systems and Technology Group, and it was an area called Specials, Analog Specials, and I just, it sounded special. It, we worked on the support chips for, the analog support chips for things like, well, we called it DASD or files, but they were disk drives and, and tape drives. I know that you didn't stay in that area. So how has your career taken some interesting twists and turns? And tell us about that. Yeah, that's been pretty interesting because, you know, I, my background, I, I'm definitely a hands-on nerd. I'm sitting here talking to you in my workshop with one, two, three, four, five Tesla coils behind me, actually. I, uh, I came up, you know, being very much of a circuit tinkerer. So I was kind of on the analog circuit side, plus the device physics. I like designing new transistors. And I came up to do laser processing of materials. And I Got, came under my first day and we started working with this really cool uh, YAG laser, uh, which I actually still carry a reminder on my left retina. <laughs> That's another story. But uh, I uh, wouldn't you know, a week later, the laser broke down and somebody said, well, while you're waiting, you know, why don't you work on this checking software? And I said, software? I hate software. And that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years. <laughs> so, um, so I did that. I, I, I quickly became, you know, working on the special software used to design analog circuits. And that took me to an assignment in England. And then I went and did my PhD in that at, at Carnegie Mellon. And then when I came back, uh, digital circuits were going so fast that, you know, digital circuits were just kind of an uninteresting special case of analog circuits in my book. So I started doing CAD for all types of chips and eventually became the CTO, you know, the chief scientist for, for that CAD stuff. And then I have a policy of every 30 years mixing it up. So I, I decided, uh, you know, because of some life circumstances, I wanted to, so I took some time in corporate strategy. So I got to actually look around and meet other people and found, you know, I never do what services or software group did. And from there is when we started, uh, the company decided to go into Internet of Things, IoT. And I, I didn't even know how to spell IoT. They asked me, well, what do you know about it? And I had been building things like a 21-foot-tall robotic pumpkin and crazy uh, carousel for carrying people at Burning Man. And I showed them that was my portfolio. And they said, yeah, okay, you can join and you can run it. I was already a fellow. So for a couple of years, I was the chief scientist at our Munich IoT lab, which was great. And it was really fun helping launch a brand. Very complicated job. And it was during that, when I should have been doing more IoT, I fell in love with AI. And then when I found out that uh, IBM has this 10-year commitment at the MIT IBM Watson AI lab, I thought, well, MIT can't escape it. And, uh, and it was a lot closer. It was only 250 miles from home instead of 5,000. So... And uh, that's pretty much uh, what takes me to at least this morning. One of the traits that we want to focus on that's a hallmark of the growth mindset is possessing an ability to acknowledge and embrace your own and other people's imperfections. What are you saying? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, I think it's such a cool question. You know, I come from a kind of a, a culture that is is sort of, you know, there's a wisdom, as Alan Watts said, a wisdom to insecurity. So I always know that there are people around smarter than I am. 
and as I, you know, as I just recounted, going from from job role to job role, when you enter a job role, you by definition don't know as much as the people around you, and there's a tendency to want to fake it till you make it, but that doesn't really work, especially as you become more of a leader. So I found that it's there's a great wisdom to asking questions and admitting you don't know. And we, we get so kind of shaken by the idea that we don't know something. And I, I learned that uh, that's, a, that's a really limiting idea. You know, you can always learn from people. You can always learn from even more junior people. I often do. And so I just think that that's probably the, the guiding uh, when you talk about imperfections. It's, it's not so, I mean, there are also people think in different ways and some people are really organized. Some people are really creative. I think you can learn from just about anybody and we never grow out of that. And the moment you become so sure that you're the smartest person in the room, you become a very dangerous technical person. Neat. That's a, that's a neat perspective. One thing I've found is that embracing people's imperfections opens you up to looking for the best in people rather than finding the flaws in people. And it creates a certain generosity of spirit, which I can tell you embody in an incredible way. So one thing I'm wondering about, we're both sort of inveterate tinkerers. You, you much more than me. When we first met, I was building a robot. However, for myself, it is a strange thing, but I'm a bit of a Luddite and not at all an early adopter of technology. How about you? What's your relationship with the latest technological gadgets? You know, people are always surprised. They ask me about cars and they ask me about stereos, and I'm not. I like to say I build the gadgets that I that I have. I have lots of gadgets, but they're all, you know, quirky things that I've designed. Uh, but I don't like, it's kind of hard to say this, but I don't like pre-made devices just for the sake of having them. I'm, uh, I'm not a possession kind of guy. Okay, how about looking into the future? What's your vision of the future of technology? I'm for it. <laughs> I mean, uh, I can't, we're not allowed to be political. Uh, but I, um, I mean, there has never been a better time to be a nerd. You know, there is so, things are, are advancing at such a great pace. I mean, just in my little bubble, the fact that, you know, that uh, electronics, uh, bandwidth, and AI have all advanced at the same point. You know, you can call it hybrid cloud, you can call it the fourth platform, but the ability to put, breathe intelligence into even small objects, I mean, that's just amazing. So that's sort of my my little bubble. But what's so great about being at the MIT IBM lab is that I get, I'm getting exposed to all these other kind of things. I mean, particularly like because of COVID, I'm learning all, all about things like cryo-EM microscopy uh, like our youngest son, uh, Gabe, is a, a PhD student in, in uh, biochemistry and cancer biology, and the the laboratory equipment that he's describing, you know, it's it's almost like the early days of silicon, you know, the advances in that. And so I just keep seeing these advances and advances and quantum and everything like that. And I just, I mean, things are advancing so fast. It, you know, I kind of wish I were born today, but I've we've had a good ride, but. I'm, so I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. Well, you've done such an amazing job of reinventing yourself. It's sort of like you've been born again and again and again, right? 
I think that it's it's quite remarkable. Well, I think in the in the meta topic of tinkering, you know, when uh, to kind of go full circle, when you think about the sort of dealing with imperfections, you know, I'm not the smartest chisel in the bunch, but I, you know, curio- a powerful curiosity and enough mischievous time management to be able to go dig into things like that. It's just such a great time to to be able to hands on take things apart, put them back together. Um, that you're you're constantly tinkering with yourself. You're reinventing yourself is is the sort of meta process of of staying current. Okay. So I think a lot of people when they hear about the growth mindset philosophy wonder how you find the time to learn so much. Is it just a matter of your infinite curiosity that pushes you to learn and how do you how do you how do you actually make the time to learn so much? I'll have to take, I mean, I don't have any comparison, um, but I do think that curiosity, you know, the kind of thing that makes you wake up in the middle of the night, sneak out of bed and then go start soldering stuff is just, I think that curiosity really keeps it going. I think uh, lack of sleep actually helps too. <laughs> I, um, though, the, you know, the nice thing about the pandemic is I probably got more sleep in the last seven months than I have in the last seven years. I think it's it's just an active curiosity, but also I don't watch TV, and I've noticed that people who watch TV, you know, I I'm infinitely engageable on anything. I'll watch grass grow, and if I'm not careful, I have to be care I have to be very careful where my attention goes because I can't control it. So I've learned to not have a TV, stay up late, and make lots of mistakes. I think that's the other thing is you become. You know, if you if you get easily put off by not learning something quickly, it, it's kind of a bummer. I, I think I've learned to be pretty resilient. Right. Okay. So we do share this common thing, not having a TV. Yeah. <laughs> I like to hear that. Okay. Now, my last question for you is the following. Is there an experience that you can tell us about that forced you to grow in an unexpected way? This is probably hard to hear, but the when our, our middle son, Sam, died in 2006, it... Uh, it completely, you know, we work in a kind of an environment where we believe that things are the way that they're, you know, they're going to be, and we have a structure. And, you know, when you lose someone close, as you, John, as you know, with your wife having just passed, uh, it, it calls into question all of those, uh, you know, those kind of things that you've done. And while it's, yes, it's an incredibly sad thing, and I could talk for hours about it, it forced me I don't even want to say it forced me. It enabled me to completely detach and do some things. As a matter of fact, from that after Sam's death, to kind of honor him, I really leaned into my working with kids. And that's what landed me on a reality show on Discovery Channel. And that's what got me this grant to do the the first robotic stuff that's behind. So I kind of think, even though it can start from tragedy, it can start from opportunity, it's what you do with it. And, and I kind of think that sort of playfulness... And the curiosity that kind of is what drives playfulness is uh, you you kind of have to make the best of any situation. And I think where we are right now with COVID and races, you know, the, the racial tensions and the political crises and climate and everything like that, the only thing you can do is go invent. I, I think every, actually everything you've achieved since Sam's passing, your playfulness, the Discovery Channel TV show, your dedication to kids and science, it's really a tribute to him in the end. And a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's kind of a weird gift. It's but you got to find those gifts where they are. You know, it's not. I'm not trying to be particularly noble. I'm just telling you that's how I stayed on the earth. And yeah, so, so something for me to learn from too. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a growth mindset for you. So, John, thank you very, very much for spending the time with us. It's really been fun, John. This is a great project. I can't wait to see the, uh, the, the subsequent things. So good luck with it. Thanks again, John. So that wraps up our very first episode of On Not Knowing. In parting, I'd like to acknowledge our wonderful audio designer, Andy Aaron. I'm John Lenchner, and thanks for listening. Thank you.